Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 807, with Chef Eric Williams. You know, I think that everyone in the building controls um, how much money they're going to make, how fast they're going to make it. People should be afforded the opportunity to, you know, to grow their income. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, and it feels so right to have Bento Box as a sponsor because I remember uh, beyond five years ago when I was researching my guests and finding people to have on the show, I remember there was a correlation between successful restaurants and Bento Box websites, and it just feels so appropriate to have them here sponsoring the show today. But Bento Box is way more than just websites. They're also online ordering and marketing, and you should know that Bento Box has new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. You can get everything you need to start marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. Schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one sink and surface cleaner sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness. To learn more, visit ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder, this show needs your help, and there's a bunch of ways you can support. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links, and you can share the word about Restaurant Unstoppable. The mission is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry by sharing knowledge, and you guys can share this podcast. Please do your part. And then lastly, join Restaurant Unstoppable Network. If you're enjoying these conversations, and you want to be a part of the conversations, that's where we're really unpackaging and pulling back the layers of what we're learning here on the show in the network. Again, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Today, we are talking to Chef Eric Williams. Chef Eric Williams got his start working under the mentorship of Chef Michael Cornick at Chef Michael Cornick's namesake restaurant, MK The Restaurant, and he spent I think almost 20 years or over 20 years working at this restaurant, uh, growing to become the executive chef and traveling all over with Chef 
Michael Cormick to open restaurants. It really just became a, a very well-rounded, respected chef uh, while with the MK restaurant. And in 2018, he broke off to do his own thing after over a 20 year run at MK's restaurant. Uh, he broke off to do his own thing to open the Virtue restaurant and has been getting recognition from across the nation and beyond that. More importantly, he's just doing some really great things for his community and to advocate for some much needed uh, causes. So doing some really cool things, uh, Honored to make an example of him today, and there's some really great lessons. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the founder and chef of Virtue Restaurant, Chef Eric Williams. Are you feeling unstoppable today, Chef? Um, I wouldn't say unstoppable (laughs) is the phrase that would best describe me, but um, yeah, we're going for it. Well, how are you feeling today? Is it a stressful morning? Um, no, it's not a stressful morning. Yeah. Uh, my days are packed um, with decisions, and you know that's that's part of the crossover from just being the chef to being in a position of chef owner. Yeah, I hear that. So um, we like to start every interview off by kind of getting that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What echoes throughout the walls of your restaurant? Um, well, our brand is is the you know it's the glue to be perfectly honest so the the very definition of virtue is a high moral standard and so you know the mantra the aura um, the backbone of who we are and what we do fits into into that mold and so um, one would ask the question well how 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 does high moral standard have anything to do with cooking? Um, but it's not as much about just cooking as it is about this approach to making sure that every guest that walks in our building feels like they're walking into an extension of our home, um, that every team member that walks into this building feels like they're walking into an extension of my home, and that every farmer that we encounter, every product that we source is thoughtfully um, located and processed in a way that makes us feel good and immediately translates to not just the consumer but also to the environment. So um, those things in my mind um, all equate moral standards as they relate to a restaurant. Yeah, I think we'll absolutely unpackage this more when we get to Virtue Restaurant on the timeline. 2018 is when you guys opened. But I really want to go back to where it all started. When you knew that this was going to be your path. How did you get into the industry? Um, I got into the industry. You know, I used to hate when people said this. They fell into it. Um, but but I literally <laughs> fell into the industry. And, 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 and no, like, I don't like the statement. So, so I wouldn't say it because I didn't have words. Um, the reality for me is... Um, I wanted to be in real estate, and that is where I had my sights. I was studying real estate um, during a period of time. I thought that restaurants would be a means to an end, and um, it's never ended, simply put. So um, I got into restaurants just you know, as a, as a part-time cook um, many years ago, and that turned to a full-time cook gone full-time cook doing openings uh, working plenty of overtime during 
periods when restaurants were short-staffed um, up to this point. And so I have been able to um, realize my goal of, of real estate ownership as well, um, adjacent to being a owner and operator in restaurants, um, which is which is the weirdest thing. Well, I was going to say, like, um, this industry is so much about real estate, like, especially when you get, you get to the point where you're helping other people open restaurants and you're really just growing people and creating opportunity. Right. So I feel like your 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 dream of being a real estate individual is still like totally like realistic. No. Well, it is realistic <clears throat> from the vantage point of business. However, chefs don't always find themselves in positions where they aspire to really understand business. Good chefs or great chefs understand costs. Um, the, the topic that comes up most in kitchens is food costs, um, labor costs, um, but, but a lot of chefs don't get into how much we're paying for rent, how much we're paying for taxes, what's the water bill, um, all those very specific items, um, how much, how much um, rent you're paying per square foot. Um, and so with that being stated, um, I had a need to understand those things and understand how those costs put pressure on my labor costs. And my food costs. I, I didn't want to show up to work every day and grind my guys out and be ground out by ownership and not have a clear understanding of what the next step was. Um, and so I was fortunate to be in a restaurant, um, the restaurant being MK Restaurant, which was open for a little shy of two decades. Um, and the owner was very, very adamant about helping us all understand how um, each facet of the business impacted another layer of the business. And, and we went through this intense training that dealt with the developmental space surrounding ownership. And not just ownership of the overall company, but ownership of our space. Ownership of a station, ownership of a shift, ownership of a, of a guest experience, um, ownership of the relationship between the farmer or, or um, our dairy provider, which is still a farmer, um, <laughs> um, and, and what that meant, what that relationship meant to us getting the best product and also getting the product at, at a time that was conducive to us being able to store and produce at a high level. And so... Um, when people think about ownership a lot of times, they really only think about ownership from a top-down approach, right? The owner is the person who, you know, signs my check. Um, but we, we weren't trained that way, and, 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 and I immediately embraced that whole philosophy. Um, and I don't, I don't train my team like that. Um, you know, I think that everyone in the building controls um, how much money they're going to make, how fast they're going to make it. I don't subscribe to the old rules of, like, you wait a year, and you get a raise, you know, if there's money there, um, people should be afforded the opportunity to, you know, to grow their income. Um, and, and, you know, we encourage people to be driven yeah. by growing their income. So. so some of the big things that I, I want to just reinforce and what you dropped on us, and, and that was a, a, an awesome run you just went on, is the understanding the why, right? And I think it's not enough just to tell people what to do. 
what Michael was doing, Michael Kornick was doing was showing you guys why to do it and showing you the big picture. So you're not just being told to go through the motions. You're understanding there's a reason why to do it this way. And I love that sense of ownership too. You got to treat it like you own it, but you also have to empower your people to have the tools and to give them the paths of growth so they can grow and show them how to do it. You know, you're shaking your head as I'm saying this, what goes through your mind? Um, I'm shaking my head in agreement. Um, so there wasn't anything going through my mind, really, other yeah. than the fact that I was agreeing okay. with what you were saying. <laughs> cool. I wasn't sure if you wanted to compound, but um, I mean, absolutely, you, you spent, since 1998, you were at um, MK's The Restaurant. Uh, but what were you doing before then? Were there, were there any significant roles before that point that kind of set you up for this opportunity? Nothing that, um, you know, when you spend 20 years in a place, nothing matters before that to be perfectly honest. Um, obviously, I had other roles in kitchens. <clears throat> and, and I alluded to the fact that I had the strong desire to be in real estate. But um, I, I spent so much time at MK that um, I, I just don't even go back much further. So when um, you came to MK, you entered in a, at the salad station, correct? I did, yes. Yeah. So uh, who, paint that picture of the man you were then. You know, the thoughts you had uh, kind of help us understand who you were going, like what was your, your intention going into this restaurant? Was that a for now job? And how did that kind of over time change to your life goal? After three or four jobs in restaurants, um, MK was still a job that I took, um, aspiring to do something else. Um, and, and I couldn't see the writing on the wall. Um, it took, it it took me a little while. We see the writing on the wall. You're saying you're, that I was going to be a restaurant. Okay. Gotcha. Um, um, I was a young cook. Um, I was loyal. Um, I was hardworking. I was hard nosed. Um, I was honest and, um, I was trainable. And, um, I think if I look back at the skills that I had, the two that I look for the most and young people when I hire them, or anyone when I hire them, um, <clears throat> is loyalty and um, whether or not they're trainable. And so, can I stop you real quick? Yeah. When when you hi- are hiring somebody, how do you know? How do you discover whether or not they're loyal or whether or not they're trainable? What are the things to look for? Loyal, you you can't you know. You you need a little time with the person to figure out if they're loyal. Um, um, you, there, there needs to be a situation where rigor takes place and the restaurant provides plenty of rigor yeah. and a shift. Um, so you need a series of shifts. So, so I can't always decipher that right away. Um, whether they're trainable or not. Um, and also the next filter is whether or not they're honest. Um, those I can kind of nail pretty, you know, pretty close, um, in a conversation, um, most people, when they talk, um, either they start to um, contradict themselves or um, they can't admit where things are wrong um, or where their growth um, needs to take place. And so <clears throat> I listen closely to see if people are, are identifying that there is an opportunity for them to grow. And that we could possibly be the, the, the group that helps them in that developmental space. Uh, anyone that's so arrogant 
that believes that, you know, I, I mean, I literally hear this in interviews. I'll interv- I interview one person after the next. They say, I say, well, um, I noticed on your resume that you've only worked at, at your last three places for six months. And the person will reply, well, you know, I tend to learn really fast, and, and then once I get bored, I leave. <laughs> so, you're not honest with yourself. I don't have to worry about it. You've got to be honest with me. Yeah, and plus, I mean, you got to keep in mind, too, and I think this is like an industry standard or should become an industry standard. This restaurant's investing time in you. We have to pay it back. Uh, these people are investing it takes some places nine, nine, 90 days, three weeks or three months to get to the point where you're even somewhat efficient at your role. Uh, and then at that point, you're there for another three months and you're leaving. You know, like you, you got to give back to the restaurant that, that's training you at least a year, I think, is a standard. What, what do you think the standard is? I think the, a year is the standard. Um, <clears throat> um, I honestly think it takes a little bit more time yeah. than that personally. That's but- the minimum. Yeah, I think I think really a year is the minimum. And I'll tell you why I think a year is the minimum. Um, if we just use 90 days as the barometer, then um, 90 days is three months. We've got four quarters in a year broken down by three-month segments. If it takes you three months to get acclimated, you've probably already missed the season in the restaurant just getting acclimated. You've been doing things, but you haven't really absorbed them. Um, so now you're leaving at three seasons instead of the entire four seasons. And there are things that you may have been able to produce differently of yourself going into that first season with three seasons behind you now. So technically... I would recommend someone work through five seasons at a restaurant instead of, instead of four seasons because the first season is a wash. Mm-hmm. That's your training period. And, <clears throat> you know, a good cook can, can jump into a place. If they got great hand and eye coordination, they can figure out um, the technical aspects of how to convert things. Um, and the period is a little shorter for fitting in or blending. Um, but you may not fully understand the philosophy um, during that period. It's just a place that you think is cool or, or you're working with someone you want to work with. Or it's a stop until you go somewhere else that you want to go. All of the above, I think, I think it just takes a, a more in-depth commitment. Um, the other thing that I think has to be flushed out is this idea that it is incredibly difficult to be excellent at a job, to be a craftsman, um, to be skilled, to master a thing if you're not committed. And so if you leave every four to six months or every six to eight months, what have you ever really committed to? And how can you negotiate with anyone that, you know, commitment is your strong suit? I think a lot of people, and I can see this from the lens of a young cook, to an old dog who's been around for a while. You know, you th- many of us think um, that we are stalling our opportunity to have this breakout moment if we stay somewhere too long. And obviously I'm biased because I stayed at a place a very long time. Yeah, um, 20 years. <clears throat> yeah, and the truth is I wanted to quit a lot of times. Um, I had other restaurants to look at that 
retain their guys um, much longer than your average restaurant, you would say. And they were great restaurants. And I'm still in touch with those chefs. Um, and, I, and, and the interesting thing is the chefs all wondered why I was so enamored with them and I didn't work with them because when I started working in restaurants, it was, it was very, you know, the orientation was, was very clicky. You know, like if you work for this group, you didn't really talk to that group. And if you work for that group, you know, um, um, you didn't talk so much to the other group because yeah. everyone was competing. Um, so it was like you were on a team that was competing against the other teams. Um, these days... That, that doesn't exist. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I was going to ask. I think that's changed. And when I started yeah. this podcast eight years ago, I think that I grew up in the industry and, and I recognize what you're saying. And I was like, are people going to be willing to talk to me and share with me what, what makes them special, how they did it? Mm-hmm. And it was a fear of mine. And I yeah. think once I started going and went, uh, the truth is, though, people – relate to young individuals coming up because they know how hard it was and know how, they remember how many questions they had and they like sharing their information and i think honestly it's and there's absolutely a trend that it is the restaurateurs that are the most generous with their knowledge that are the most successful because they're attracting onto themselves to pe- the right people that want to come and learn and in, in, in this is their career what are, what, are your, what are your thoughts on what i'm saying so um real quick before you respond pull the mic up just hold it by the hile down here and just pull it a little bit closer to your mouth for me. Thank you very much. Perfect. So in response, um, and I guess this ties back into the whole commitment piece. So I do think that it's important for owners to share. I do think that it's important for the industry to give back um, because it is a very, very demanding industry, like so many industries. Um, However, if, if I gave you the secret sauce, what do you apply it to? You're just walking around with information, a lot of information. If, yeah. you, if, you don't, if you haven't invested enough time, if you haven't worked through the process, if we use that as a metaphor, the process of sauce making, giving you one sauce recipe doesn't do anything. Like, like you know, the, the, the sauce that is really protected is McDonald's Big Mac sauce. Everybody believes they know what's in that sauce. We all dumb, down, dumb it down and say it's just Thousand Island. Um, but it's not just Thousand Island, because if it was just Thousand Island, they wouldn't have to spend so much time protecting yeah. it. Um, and it's the thing that has you know kids craving it. We could argue whether or not it's good for you and all the things about sustainability and whatever. Um, many of us have had exposure to the secret sauce. If you had that recipe, can you open McDonald's tomorrow? No. Right. Like it, it, because that recipe is just a part of all the other things that make McDonald's what it is. Yeah. And I wouldn't even venture to say to make McDonald's great. I would say to make McDonald's what it is. And it works. Yeah. It's proven that it works. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole process around how, why, and when it works. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, um, McDonald's owns their real estate. They franchise the spaces, but most times they own their real estate. It's funny. I meant, when you mentioned that you were into real estate and that you want to be into real estate, the first company that came to mind was McDonald's because it's been said that they are a real estate company first. And if you look at the real estate that McDonald's owns, it's all intersections, corner lots. Like Their most valuable assets, their real estate. Well, interestingly enough... <clears throat> Not to get off subject. <laughs> no, we won't get off subject because it's part of how I think. So, um, interestingly enough, the, the, the dirty little secret is if you and I elect 
to open a really cool coffee shop, we'll say, in a neighborhood where we get this super obscure coffee. And we grind it each day and we roast our beans and we only use um, milk that was um, um, taken from cows within 48 hours. And we're super into the sustainability of what happens to the, to the grains after, after they've been spent or after they've been used. Um, we want to use that for mulch and or compost. Um, <clears throat> Um, we were focused also on uh, what non-dairy products um, for people who may have allergens. And we're also super focused on service. And we decide we're going to do this in a underrepresented community where the benefit for us is the rent is probably cheaper. And we kind of put this neighborhood, this forgotten neighborhood on the map. And we feel really, really good about bringing this service and this super cool product to a community. The community benefits. Um, the operators are very proud that they launched a successful business. But over a period of time, the person who really benefits is the landlord. Because a property that they were sitting on as a land bank, all pun intended, Right. They, they have land just they're just holding land. Right. Waiting for it to accrue value. Yeah. The moment our business becomes successful, we change the value. Yes. We set the values in that space. Yes. Not only do we set the values in the space, we make the neighborhood more attractive. And then we may even spark interest that other operators come in. Yes. And and, and once that happens then the remainder of the landlords start to benefit. Yes. And when they sell those properties, everything you sell, you sell based on perceived value. Yes. And we create tangible value because we're the person paying the rent. And so if the landlord says, I'm not going to sell year one, year two, year five, year 10, then now we're building equity in their property, right? As the values raise and we don't get any of that equity. And so, um, so real estate's a really important key, and I think the, the, the cliche is real estate is a cornerstone, cornerstone to wealth. Um, and whether you want to be like uber rich or you just want you know, to um, um, have enough wealth to do some, be afforded some of the things that you want to do in life, like take great vacations or, or control your kid's education um, and, and not just be relying upon um, the mercy right, of your, of your local municipality, um, <clears throat> then um, you have to have some leverage in terms of wealth. And, and owning a business is an important key. Um, but there are facets to owning a business. Um, and so when you look at demographics or different groups um, um, that, have, that have historically owned restaurants, Let's go back a little bit when restaurants were a cash business, like almost all of your breakfast places in the coffee shops were cash businesses. There's a good chance that somebody in the family did the books. So you eliminate the professional fees, um, and you also support another business, accounting, while you're supporting your business. Maybe you have a family member that's an attorney. So again, right, you eliminate the, 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 the same rate for the professional fees, but you also contribute to another business. And so there are all these avenues 
that small businesses and or big businesses contribute to. And when you're just thinking about this in a polar sense as a chef, um, um, you can sometimes miss the opportunities that are before you. Like, I don't know that many chefs until we, until we start drinking and have this conversation. I don't know that many chefs that think about how many industries they impact. Now, it's been thrust upon us during the pandemic. But I'll just rattle off a few um, just, just to kind of heighten the awareness. The average chef immediately impacts truckers via the fact that almost all your deliveries come in through that route. They impact um, um, the prices of diesel fuel. They impact the mechanics that service those trucks. And that just deals with, immediate deal, immediately deals with our vendors. We immediately impact the farmers that we know. We impact um, refrigeration and cooling, the refrigeration and cooling industry. Um, everything that we receive comes over on refrigerated trucks all the way to our refrigerators that are in, in, the, in the space. We um, impact the metal industry. Almost everything that's in our kitchen is made out of metal um, and or bolts um, and screws. And so then you get to flooring, wood, um, fabric, um, um, the china that's on our, on, our, on our tables, the glassware, metal again when you get into silverware. And, and these are all industries. This is yeah. not, right? Like it, they're all viable businesses. And the, and the bizarre thing is, is the chef being the engine of the restaurant. You're, I think the, this podcast is another example. What would I do if I can make an example of you, right? Yeah. 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 How do we, what, what, what information do you have to, sim, to disseminate if there's no one to give you information? Yeah, exactly. And so you have all these industries that, that you know, kind of work around the axis of restaurants. All these industries that work around the axis of, of restaurants. And the industry that is leaned upon the most after they give all they can give gets the least gets the least yeah. and and not just the not just the industry not just the small restaurant operator but the kitchen mm. most specific and it's just a bizarre thing and so um you know part of our goal and part of our process is not just to help our team members understand how to make the best bordelais sauce um, we want them to understand um, specifics that that deal with culture, um, that deal with history, that deal with economics, and that's why we talk about our process being more a developmental process than than a training yeah. or teaching I, process. I re- right. Yeah, I really want to break this down as the because I agree I agree one hundred percent, and you spelled that out beautifully. And I want to talk about how we change that, but I also want to just bring to the surface some of the key points you dropped on us because there was a lot there. I think the first thing um, talking about it's not what you know; it's it's execution, right? when you were talking about McDonald's and the sauce, you can have all the secrets to to everything in the world, but you still have to execute. Right. And I think that's one thing people forget. We can share knowledge, but can they, can they execute like I can, do they have the discipline? Right. So it's not about what you know, it's about your ability to execute is one thing I picked up from our conversation. I think the other thing is all ships rise with the tide, right? That mentality. I think that was one thing that you were trying to prove that when you go into a, uh, a, a neighborhood, you're bringing value to that neighborhood. All ships rise to the tide. And I think the, the, the ultimate point is that we don't, we're not the beneficiary of 
the good we're doing. There's a big, the big lesson I think that we need to, to pull from that. Um, is that the, is that the message that I get it? Um, I, I wouldn't say that we're not the beneficiary of the good that we're doing. I think that there is an opportunity for us to have more control or, or maybe we're being exploited. Uh, we are being exploited. Yeah. In, in some cases we are being exploited and, yeah. and we do a lot of good for, for the right reasons. Um, and that's why I didn't want to answer that specifically. Um, um, and I had to go against it a little bit. I don't a hundred percent disagree, but, but just the, but you know, um, but there is a percent of disagreement there. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think, first of all, I support the industry. Let me just say that as a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would be a hypocrite if I didn't say that because I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in if the industry wasn't so great and wasn't filled with so many opportunities. I personally believe that there are just so many opportunities left on the table in our pursuit to just cook. And I am adamant about dispelling the fallacy that chefs who have possess the ability to think on their feet i.e. they're critical thinkers. Um, we could debate how, um, um, how some chefs are temperamental. We could debate um, how some chefs respond under pressure. But then we would have to try to figure out a barometer to measure the pressure that they're under day to day. And maybe if there were more opportunities um, to balance said pressure, maybe some chefs wouldn't respond the way that they respond. And those are just things that are food for thought. And so I love this industry. I love the idea that I've been able to make a living as a cook and grow through the ranks and learn so many fascinating things. However, I don't think that that's where I want to lay my hat. And I would encourage young cooks across the country, across the nation, um, not to lay their hats there. So um, just help me get clarity. Yeah. We say lay their hats there. What, where, spell it out. What is there? So a lot of chefs stop at ownership. And ownership to them means that they have their own space where they pay rent and they usually have a business partner who manages all of their affairs and they trust that individual to make sure that what we would call the front of the house or the back office um, is managed because they believe that that's not their strong suit. And the, that, the, I don't think that that's the reality. I, I, like, uh, um, you got inventory in the kitchen, you have inventory at the bar. And if you can understand how to process inventory and goods, right, then you can understand how to process that as it relates to how many chickens you have, how much foie gras you have, um, um, how much caviar you have. If you can, if you can, you're managing assets, right? You are managing assets. Yeah. Um, and, um, or inventory. And if you understand inventory management, which, which we teach our dish team, you know, one of the jobs that's really tough in kitchens is the dish pit because it's looked at as the hardest working job and the lowliest job in the kitchen. It's wet. It's hot. And it doesn't have a ton of reward. Um, I do. We, we're unpackaging a lot. I, I feel like as we move 
progressively towards current times. Uh, you opened in 2018, three years ago. And I know a lot of your values, a lot of your morals is what's driving you here at Virtue. Um, so I, I think we're going to pick up this conversation where, where we left off. But I am really curious, going back to before opening Virtue, uh, Michael um, Kornick was a huge – or. MC or sorry, MK's the restaurant was a huge transformative experience for you. Right. So I just, I kind of want to unpackage that a little bit more before we start talking, going back to virtue, um, reflecting back at Michael, what kind of leader was he and how did he influence you and how did you transform during this time, this 20 year, I mean, it's a lot of time to reflect on, but what were the biggest, how, what were the biggest things you took away from that experience at my, MK's? Um, MK was Michael's first project that, A, he had his name on, and it was his first solo project. So he had a lot at stake. And he felt like, um, you know, his back was against the wall. So, So this was you know, his, his life's work coming full circle. And it was going to determine his level of success moving forward or the brand um, moving forward. And so that's an immense amount of pressure. And so he was intense. Um, however, um, there was a lot to learn in that moment. And... You know, people display passion, fear um, in different ways. And sometimes that that um, those emotions come out vocally. Sometimes it's silence that's deafening. Um, He was not a very silent person. However, he was uber passionate and, and cared a ton about the space, about the product, about the relationships with people who entered into the space, and about the team. Um, and those are attributes that, um, that we still hold close um, today. Um, we, we, don't, we are not as vocal in our intense moments, uh, which, which actually he encouraged. I, I remember I was having a, a meltdown moment when we opened Virtue, like the first days. <clears throat> and when we closed MK, we, um, we all wore T-shirts um, in the closing weeks that, um, that had the, the year that it opened and the year that it was closing and a um, phrase that one of um, our cooks turned restaurant operator, um, Elliot Hunt at Atlas um, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, Elliot came up with this phrase, to the wheels fall off. And that's, that's really how we rolled. You know, once you got in the car, you, you were in it. You know, um, now people talk about drinking the Kool-Aid, but like <laughs> before there was Kool-Aid, you know, we were riding to the wheels fell off. And so I was having a meltdown moment and he walked up in a sweater and he could see the tension. Um, and it's even more intense when your mentor and or chef is in the building and people aren't performing the way that you feel like they need to perform. <clears throat> and you also believe that what they're doing is not rocket science. 
And he said, listen, you have everything you need to produce at a high level. And you have more patience than I had in this moment. Because you had the opportunity to work with me in that moment. And you have just so much more experience um, as it relates to managing your team. And he says, and I want you to remember something. And I didn't even want to hear what he had to say, to be perfectly honest. And I definitely didn't want him that close to the kitchen. Um, because literally, I mean, I, I was literally about to melt down. And he lifts up his sweater, and it's this T-shirt under his sweater that he wore for just in case that said, till the wheels fall off. And, <laughs> and, it, and it, it just helped me remember that, like, I'm supported. You know, a lot of times when, when you're at the point of no return in your head or you feel like, um, um, that all the things that should stick are no longer sticking, like all the glue <laughs> doesn't work. Um, that's an important time for most of us to be reminded that we have support, that people have our back, that, that the process still works. We're just going through a rough patch. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about a flight, when you take flight right before turbulence, usually a really great pilot lets you know. And if they don't let you know before you hit turbulence, they let you know while it's happening. And they actually give you about a rough estimate of how long that turbulence is going to be. And so that's there so that you're not hit by surprise with this really rough patch during your flight and that you don't have a conclusive space that you can, that you can physically see light at the end of the tunnel. When you're melting down, you can't see light at the end of the tunnel. And so those were things, those were, were things that I was able to take away from my mentorship um, um, and things that I witnessed, right? Because I, I witnessed Michael meltdown. I was the guy who had to be the support, even in the, in the capacity of a cook, because you got to have somebody on your team that you can lean on. Yeah. And interestingly enough, sometimes, because we left off here, sometimes that, that group is the dish team. If the dish team can continue to get you dishes, the team can, can, can perform. You know, you start running out of cups, glasswares. Yeah, and, it affects and, everything. And, right. Yeah. Then, then it's like chain, an intense moment, right, just, just got even more intense. Yeah. So, so you got to be able to lean on someone. And um, being reminded that, right, like, like if a station's going down, that the other three stations or four stations are pulling their load, which allows you to now start to juggle some things and maybe slow some things down. Um, to get some support to that individual um, allows you to get through what could be a really rough patch and a shift. Um, and it allows us to get through really rough patches in our life. And so we try to translate those things both from the kitchen to our everyday existence. Yeah. I think just generally speaking, humans are hardwired uh, to get really close to whatever it is that's stressing them out to get right up. So it's all they see and it blinds everything else. And sometimes you need to take a few steps back to get away from the thing, to see the big picture, to know that that supports there and to realize that it's not as bad as you think it is. Right. Yeah. Just to kind of reset and remind yourself that I'm close. This is an immediate threat to me right now, but big picture, you know, the, the Buddhist approach of it, it's like this, there's nothing I can do about it. Just get through it. Right. Yes. And, and stay calm. Um, awesome stuff. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, any, I know at one point you're helping Michael open restaurants. Yes. And I think that's one thing that comes up a lot on the show. It's one thing to run a restaurant. It's another thing to know how to open a restaurant. What were the, the biggest elements that you think you were able to garner during your 20 years in the, the experiences you had helping him open restaurants that set you up for success at Virtue? 
Well, <clears throat> um, if you're going to talk about it, you have to talk about both. I, I helped them open restaurants and I helped them close restaurants. And so um, most people don't want to talk about the latter being the close. And they play into each other. There's a level of sensitivity. There's a level of emotion. Um, and there is a level of acute awareness that needs to take place in both. Um, people feel like their life is ending when they've worked at a restaurant for a long time. Um, people feel like this is the birth of new opportunity when they start at a restaurant. People have their own agenda um, in both of those spaces. Um, <clears throat> um, people feel like they've been deserted in closings. People feel like they are going to help you manage your brand and, and opening. And, and in some forms, that's true. They will help you manage your brand, but they need to understand what the brand is. And, and, and a meeting or an interview is not enough to understand the brand. What is enough? Well, I, I think it starts with every great operator that I either aspire to be and or admire gives themselves enough space to allow their brand to be what it naturally is. And so what I mean by naturally is, so, so virtue was a concept turned um, full-on realization as a restaurant. And we had an idea of what virtue would be, how it would feel, and it's become something else because it is very difficult <clears throat> to add a room full of other people's DNA um, uh, by way of their personalities and think that a thing is going to be exactly what it is in your head. Because my head, my brain doesn't consider the nuances of you. And if I want this thing, as we talk about restaurants to be breathing, living things, or we talk about businesses to be these, you know, places where there's this evolution that constantly takes place, it moves. Um, then how does it move independent of the people who shoulder that space day in and day out? And so my understanding and, and, and what, what I was able to garner from opening restaurants is this ability when you're anxious, when, when you feel like people are a little off-center, how we incorporate the off-center into the um, process, into the brand in a way that feels organic and natural. Um, and I do, I do that as well as, as a chef. You know, there, there are chefs that are very laser-focused on technique. A sauce is made this way. A sauce is never made any, any different. Um, um, we always start with these three points, and, and we're, not going any, we're not going to deviate anything in these first, let's say, five or six steps. And then we can, we can change some things, flavors, add flavor, um, um, cha change viscosity, and or intensity after the first five steps. And what happens is sometimes you, you find a cook who's a really, really good cook. But they get to step four. Every time they get to step four, something, something just goes, goes weird. And so if we say necessity is the mother of invention, maybe, maybe step four is the inventive space. Because it's necessary that we get the sauce yeah. if we want the sauce to be a part of the program, right? But what is, the, what is the inventive space? And so I think that great operators leave a lot of room for the inventive 
space. Okay. So what I'm hearing is, you know, you, you need a brand that it's not enough just to, to write the brand. Um, you, you need to communicate the brand. And, but at the same time, the brand might be separate from the individuals who are in the, so you need to kind of, kind of find that middle ground where the people that are in the brand can be themselves, but also under the umbrella of the greater brand. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? Like there's, you use that, yeah. that yeah. freedom for creativity because you can't be too rigid with a brand. You can't be too rigid. I mean, you can, we've seen, we've seen, um, um, brands that are uber rigid, um, and we've seen them successful. Um, we've also seen many that are successful, um, that have a different culture, I'll say. And we just happen to have a different culture and we found success in that. And that culture is, um, um, uh, and, and, and a culture that invites people to, um, build upon who they are and grow in their own space. We meet people um, in our brand, and, and we do it purposely. We, we don't, you know, you can't come in and change the uniform from black to bright red um, because there are some things that are fairly consistent, um, but, we, but we don't take a person who um, is not flattering in a certain cut of fabric and force them into that, right? Most of us, um, because we're all shaped different, you know, we can wear some things, some things we can't wear. And, and, and it's just, it's not that important to me for everybody to look the same, a, yeah. talk the same, act the same. You know, we, we have people who work with us who have different accents. Mm-hmm. Some words are tougher for them to say. We find new words. Yeah. Right? You got to celebrate people for their uniqueness or their uniqueness. You can't force them into molds constantly. And you have to be okay with letting people be some rendition of themselves. We would like to believe that we should be okay with that, but, yeah. but after watching a thirteen, a thirteen month or fourteen month period of pandemia, yeah. and and protests, um, obviously our world has a problem. We with have allowing a people, yeah. yeah, to be who, <laughs> they, sure. who they naturally yeah. are. It's like we debate about things legitimately that just don't matter. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need to understand everything about an individual. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I would do well to understand most things about myself. And let me just tell you, I've been working on it for 40-something years, and I'm still working on it. Yeah. Um, so I, I find pleasure in understanding um, the nuances of other people. I'm a person who likes to sit somewhere and people watch. Um, however, I don't stay up at night trying to figure out why you chose to do podcasts for a living. Why did you stay in the industry in another capacity? I'd love to have that conversation with you. I'd love to have it with right? you too. <laughs> I'd love, I love, I'd I love, to, I, I'm, I geek out about other people's professions. Yeah. But that doesn't put me in a place where I need to convince you that my role as an owner or my role as a chef or my role as a cook, my role in real estate is superior to your role. Like, if you find joy in doing what you're doing or you find joy in your space or comfort in being who you are. That's what matters. That's what matters, right? And, and I should be okay. I should be secure enough or confident enough to work on my own joy. Yeah. Um, and so, so a lot of things virtue. When you ask me about things that I took from an opening, right? Keeping that still as the catalyst. Um, the beautiful thing about experience as you work through many processes in order to gain experience and hopefully to learn, glean something from it. And so I felt like I was at an advantage doing these openings because I got a chance to see the new teams. I got a chance to see the, what we would call the handicaps, right? The person who could get to four couldn't get to the sixth process. 
Um, and I got a chance to see the workarounds and the maneuvering because sometimes the demand to open is greater than the demand to get somebody to do things a very, very specific way. And that happens a lot in restaurants. And it doesn't just happen with people. We thought that the linen was going to be white. We thought it was going to be a certain grade of cotton. And the meals stopped producing that cotton three days before we placed our order. Mm. Right? Um, we thought that the chandelier was going to be this thing or the lighting was going to be this hue. However, the chandelier showed up cracked and it changed the hue of lighting throughout the entire restaurant. Now, you could pull your hair out and say this is all wrong or you could open your restaurant. And so... Um, um, chefs and our operators spend a lot of time adapting. So are you saying that it's better to lean towards opening the restaurant or to hold off to get things exactly right? I'm saying that whatever your idea of a restaurant is always leaves room for you to adapt to what your real space is in real time. So leave if, a little wiggle room is the, the major takeaway Everybody that does it right has wiggle room, whether, yeah. whether it's forced or not. Like yeah. The wiggle room creates itself. So ha- have your brand, have your vision, have your mission, have direction, but have it be a general direction, not a single degree. No, I think, I think people need to have a singular focus in business. Okay. I think when you talk about excellence, as a lot of chefs do, um, or, or producing something at an at a, at a uber high level that there needs to be an intense amount of focus. However, I've also talked to enough chefs that have told me that their brand new cooler broke down or their brand new freezer or a piece of equipment broke down the day of the opening. I've yet to go to um, an opening where, where um, something wasn't either broke or not working right. The POS, POS system is, is a is a major culprit of, of changing your service. Yeah. And so what do you do? Do you just close in the moment that something doesn't work? No, you pivot. Or do you move forward, yeah. right? And so, so I'm saying that leaving space in your mind for things to naturally evolve is a much less stressful way yeah. to do uh, an opening. Really, I think what I'm hearing from you is like have a minimal viable product, something to start, and be open, receptive to the possibilities and evolve as you see as as you know you, you progress into the future. But don't be so dead set, but just be open to the possibility. Yes. Okay. And is that the big takeaway? Do you think that's kind of what you learned with developing these restaurants is not being super laser focused in the beginning and knowing that whatever you think it might be is probably not likely what it's going to be because we, we just can't hit it on the, we can't hit the, the, the nail on the head every time. Amongst many things. I mean, doors don't open the right way. I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, I've just seen a lot of things that, you know, as we would say, it's that curl that just won't quite yeah, curl. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes. So you have to leave yourself open to the unforeseen. Yeah. All right. This is a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to kind of start talking about what it was like opening your first restaurant that was your restaurant. Who wants to be more efficient and cleaner? Everyone. So streamline your clean faster than ever before with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Ecolab's two-in-one Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer is one product that can both clean and sanitize food contact surfaces in front of house, back of house, and the third sink. Like other EPA-registered food contact surface sanitizers, it helps protect against foodborne illness and also kills SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 
in 15 seconds and norovirus, the flu, and common cold viruses in 30 seconds, helping you reduce risk, simplify your procedures, and help protect your team, your guest, and your reputation with Ecolab Sink and Surface Cleaner Sanitizer. Visit Ecolab.com slash unstoppable or talk to your Ecolab representative. We're back and let's get into what it was like opening your first restaurant, Virtue. Uh, first, like, how did you get to this point? I know you were with MK for 20 years. They closed. What's going through your mind when they close? What's next? So when MK closed, um, the weeks leading up to MK closing, um, there was a huge emotional roller coaster going on, both in me and many of the team members that were around me. Um, was it sudden? Um, it, it, well, it was, it was partially sudden. I mean, like, there's never a good time for a breakup. Um, and, and we had broke up with our landlord. <clears throat> so um, Sutton is a good word, but I think when people hear Sutton, it's like close the doors tonight. Um, um, so there were a couple weeks leading up to it um, and, and even an extension. But it, it, like there's never enough time. And so and it's a very, very hard thing to plan when there's emotional attachment. What do you throw away? What do you keep? What, like, it, it, oh, boy, it was tough. Um, it's like moving on steroids. So once I started gearing up towards getting the restaurant closed, that was my focus. And the focus had a lot to do with absorbing the emotional impact of people around me, thinking about where we could get people placed um, so that they weren't without pay, making sure that team members who allowed us to help um, were in places that fit their skill sets, gave them an opportunity to grow and grow their income. Um, And so I had a lot of jobs in that moment. And then at some point, the restaurant was physically closed and I didn't have a job. So then I had to process that for myself. Um, And that that was tough. Um, because I didn't realize how big a load I had been carrying for the past couple of months. Um, <clears throat> so then I immediately started trying to find a job just to stay busy. And um, restaurants wouldn't touch me. Um, um, people were nervous about giving me like nominal positions. Why? Um, you know, there's this fear that if you bring a chef in as a cook, that he'll disrupt. Mm. You know, make waves. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it because chefs do things a very specific way. And overqualified. Not, yeah, they're overqualified yeah. in every sense of the word, and you don't want someone coming in ruining all the good work that you've put in. You know, impatient, questioning um, um, how things are done. Um, you know, a, a chef could easily be insubordinate without without even trying to be. Yeah. Um, or without even being conscious. So, so I got it, but at the same time, I didn't get it because all I really wanted to do is kind of like, you know, um, fly under the radar for a few weeks and like do what I believed I was good at doing. And that is like, you know, grilling the perfect thing or, or dicing the perfect dice or making the perfect puree or, or whatever that was. Um, and, um, you know, maybe organizing something, um, 
before and after service. The stuff that I train people to do that I knew, you know, inherently how to do well. Yeah. So that went on for a period. And then the phone started ringing off the hook um, for me to do um, private catering gigs. You had opened your own catering company in 2014 before this, Eric Cook's Catering, correct? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. And so, um, so I catered through MK. Um, and at this point, I had a pretty strong database and did not expect to have all these gigs. So then I was able to do what I wanted to do, right? <laughs> Just make the perfect sauce, real yeah. perfect thing. And so... Um, and ironically, uh, many of our um, service and or cooks, um, you know, they, they weren't rooted in the places that they were in yet. They weren't what? Rooted? Rooted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were new at the places. So, so on the days off, they were happy to just spend some time um, working just so we could have collaborative space. And that was in someone else's home. And it, and it paid good money. And so we started doing that, and then I um, coined the phrase um, fun employment, um, taking unemployment and adding an F, uh, which many people confused that I was just having a lot of fun on unemployment, uh, which I was, but I was actually... It's <laughs> a change of pace. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But I was actually fun employed. Yeah. And so I could do a couple catering gigs a month, and and satisfy my financial needs and have some money left over and work with people I wanted to work with, be at a different site every day and or every every project um, and um, create a menu for that that event, clean up, um, break down for the next two days and, you know, repack things and store it. And then I'm done for another week. We go into planning for the next event. It wasn't like I was doing these things every day. Yeah. So. That was great because it left me a lot of time in between to dictate when I wanted to do jobs, when I wanted to go on vacation, um, who I wanted to hang out with. Yeah. I, I, I was touring the city like from a, from, a, from a fresh set of eyes, going to restaurants that I wanted to go to, hanging yeah. out with friends. I, I mean, it, this, was, it was awesome. This didn't last long, though, because I think you closed uh, MK in 2018 and you opened Virtue in 2018. And I think you opened in 102 days from the, from the, the, the starting point of like, we're going to do this. Boy, you've done a lot of homework. Um, we <laughs> did open bit. in 102 days. And, and um, for, for a slow-moving creature, um, I tend to do things in a vacuum. Um, and that definitely sounds contradictory, but somehow it happens. <laughs> um, I'm an adrenaline junkie, and, and I, I preserve my energy for, for moments filled with adrenaline. So... Um, How did this opportunity even come to you? I mean, you, it sounds like you're pretty content from listening to you talk. It, it seems like you're content with like getting into this new groove of kind of having like this, this better balance of go hard, take a break, plan, go hard, plan, relax. Like you had a good thing going. Um, how did this opportunity come, come across your table? Boy, you should, you should write my book. Um, cause that, that, that well, sums I'll, me up. Well, what's that? You, that sums me up. That, that, like, that's it. Like I go really, really hard. Which part of I the, stop. Oh, okay. Gotcha, yeah. Gotcha. And I stop and I plan. Um, and then sometimes I throw the plans out the window. Um, and, and then, and then I, can I relax. Re- I can relate to that. Yeah. Cause I, I recently just found that balance too with the podcast. Cause there were times where I'd be on the road for like five months, literally like one city to the next city, living on my car and just being constantly moving. And I realized that it was unsustainable. You know, yeah. it was not sustainable. And I finally got into this groove of two months in one spot, two weeks on the road, 
to, mm-hmm. and, and like you can find that bounce and it's yeah. nice. So I, I know what you're saying. It's a different, when you're constantly going, you just, you have no time to kind of just like a rubber band stretch back and like, yeah. you know, regroup, you're constantly stretched. Um, it's exhausting. So what was going, like how, why did you get away from that to, to get back into the, um, the grind? Um, I love the energy in restaurants. I was offered a job um, at this site as the plans were being made to um, potentially buy the restaurant that was here. And um, the plan for me to take the job didn't feel as natural as me potentially taking the next step raising money from investors and owning the space outright. Um, I had the intellectual property, um, i.e. the brand, the concept, um, and it it felt like I was going to be in a position where I'd be working really, really hard to be the tide, as you alluded to earlier, right? Rising tides lift all ships. And um, it's like, well... If I got to be the tie, can I own a boat? Right? Can I have direct benefit or can someone adjacent to can me I have own direct? the property? Yeah, you know, like at least some some, you know, um uh, riverfront property, something. Yeah. You know, um and so if I was going to be the engine, um you know, I wanted some of the benefits of the paint job. So, um I thought that I had enough experience. Um it proved that I did. However, I think you asked a more specific question, and that was, what was it like? It was batshit crazy. That's what it was like. (laughs) Um, um, You know, there are moments in your life that you prepare for that as soon as the moment happens, you realize how unprepared you are. And, and, And the preparation, it does not take away from the credence of this idea that you need to prepare and really prepare hard. In what ways were you unprepared? It's the emotional impact that doing what could be the biggest thing in your life um, um, and having you know the financial responsibility, the responsibility, the direct responsibility for everyone's livelihood in a space and the pressure yeah and the pressure of all of that while you're emotionally wound it's just crazy there's no way to accurately explain to somebody what you are feeling on the inside and and you don't know if you want like there's a reason why people have a lot of partners in business because those people help absorb that pressure yeah um, but the truth is, even your partners are going through it. They're just more people. But you have, but I mean, it's so much better. Like, what's the what's the the, the phrase? Misery loves company. Well, or, misery, yeah, <laughs> misery does love company. But at the same time, um, when you have other people to like go through it with, like like you alluded to earlier, like people are there for you. You have that support. And yeah. when you're going it by yourself, it's lonely at the top. Uh, you have nobody to, that, that can relate to what you're going through. You need that support system. You need to be able to lean on somebody. When you're having a bad day, you need that, that, that partner to step up and kind of 
support you a little bit and then you yeah. need to be there for them when they're having a bad day. I don't I don't recommend anybody try to do, go into business completely by themselves if they're trying to do something truly great because you, you need to be so many different things. Unless you're a freak of nature and there's some freaks of nature out there, you won't have everything you need to do it right. Well, I I don't recommend anyone go into it by themselves either, but I think there's structures that that allow you to have the support you need without physically having a lot of people in a um, full-on partnership role as it relates to uh, fiscally. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, um, there, are, there are times when people make their attorneys their partners. There are mm-hmm. times when people make their accountants their partners. I'm simply stating that that may... Uh, that's, that's not always necessary. It depends on, it, it depends on how, your, how your partner is contributing and then, and then what ruins partnerships is how long they will contribute. You know, the, the engine always has to contribute. That's yeah. the weird thing about, about these kinds of processes. Um, the engine know, always has to contribute. Yeah. So what is the engine? When you in get this- in your car, there's an engine. Yeah. Every time you turn on the ignition. The systems. Right. It, it has to produce. It is the, it is the, the component that physically moves the vehicle. Okay, and so um, um, in most restaurants, the chef, if you took a lesser restaurant, not lesser, but if you took a different format and there's a kitchen manager, that person is usually moving the vehicle. The kitchen manager? The The kitchen manager, yeah, kitchen manager, chef. um, um, They're usually moving the vehicle. Kitchen managers are usually a role where it's mostly fast casual. We all know what chefs do. Um, And so... Then there are all these supporting parts around it. And um, you got to ask yourself if, if the kitchen manager has to be there every morning to open that restaurant. In some cases, they're there until it closes. Um, but let's just say it's a well-oiled machine and the kitchen manager is the person who facilitates um, and makes sure that the, that the food always both feels fresh and eats fresh um that there's a fresh take on the menu that there is a fresh approach to how we handle process and deliver ingredients um and the chef is full of um um creativity and gives you delivers you this full on experience every time you're in the restaurant that is what you expect as part of that brand do you expect the attorney to always litigate and or find issue, uh, right? Um, do you expect the accountant, uh, once they get their systems in place, to always um, um, have to spend the same amount of time on a particular um, part of your finances? At some point, some of these jobs should become more efficient and they, mm-hmm. should, they should deserve or require less time. It is very, very difficult for a chef to create a kitchen that's high performing that requires less time. If anything, chefs chefs add more rigor yeah. to their job as they because get better. Always trying to improve, right? Then they make the job more complicated, more challenging. And so, if a chef is going to be an owner, um, then it's tough for someone to match that work. As beautiful as a car looks on the outside, you take the engine out of out of the vehicle. It's just a beautiful car sitting on the curb. So, are you suggesting that you? 
don't make yourself the engine and you start by making somebody else the engine so no, you can't no, be on it? No, I, I, I'm, I, I'm the engine. Okay. Um, I make sure that I have really great, um, uh, I have a really great supporting cast and, and I don't try to put myself in a position where all things are equal because they're not. Um, at the end of the day, if, if this restaurant has to close tomorrow, God forbid, um, no one else's brand is going to take a dent. Yeah. But my own. Yeah. If the thing is hugely, hugely successful over the next 10 years, um, it will lift my brand. Um, but I could I could have been in a position which I'm not, but I could have been in a position where um, my supporting partners could have equal shares of a company where they don't have to do equal um, contributions on a day to day basis. And how would that make my not my ego, but how would that make me feel when I'm con- contributing and recognizing that I'm working harder than everybody else, right? And their kids are benefiting, you know, at the same level that my kid is benefiting. But my kid's the only one that's saying, Daddy, when are, we, when are you going to ride my bike with me? Yeah. You know? So it sounds I'm like here. You sounds like what I'm hearing is that you think that the, that the, the system as we know it, the, the way of doing business as we know it is broken and not distributed equally. It's not broken. It just needs to be balanced. Okay. There's a big difference between something being broken and something being tweaked. When your scale does not uh, measure correctly, then you calibrate it. The, the system, um, um, as a chef, right, the system to me needs calibration, and the calibration is that, that, that chefs need to create more ownership space for themselves, period. Um, um, and you're seeing this in sports, Right. The, the, contractors, the contracts are getting larger and larger and larger for athletes. Some would say that the, that the contracts are insane. However, we haven't heard about a game not being played, and the, the, in, in, in Lord knows if it's ever happened. We've never heard, actually. I'll venture to say we've never heard a, a, a playoff series not being played because the owner twisted his ankle right before the game. <laughs> yeah. Right? And the owner has very little chance of twisting his ankle or her ankle right before the game. Right? The, the game is not conducive to. Nobody shows up to see the owner get out there and perform at the highest level. We expect our seats to be comfortable. We expect the ushers to be in place. There are a lot of things that we expect ownership to manage via the experience but we're really showing up for the stars that are yeah. on the court whereas so, in the restaurant industry the owner is the star the owner reaps the benefits the greatest benefit of the star okay but in, so you're saying in the scenario where the owner isn't the chef this is the scenario but what you're saying is we yes. need more scenarios where the owner is the chef yes and how do we do that? How do we create that scenario where there is a better balance? Uh, where we, how do we recalibrate this? What needs to happen? There, there is no we in that calibration. Chefs have to take ownership of mm. their space. Um, uh, we've got to get what we have to do as a group is get out of the mindset of not understanding the, um, the profit and loss statement in restaurants, not understanding um, how, you know, how much rent we're, the, the owner is paying per square foot. Like we all start somewhere and, and you're on a rung on a ladder. But in order to truly get to the top of the ladder, I think ownership is, is, is part of that, that natural escalation. So what has to start happening that hasn't been happening in the past to get there? We got to seek out that information. And I think, I think more chefs are seeking it out now yeah. um, as, as they're realizing 
<clears throat> that, that they're building brands that aren't built to sustain them. They're building brands that create intellectual property that the owner is um, um, the possessor of, not the person who is the creative, and they're getting a shorter end of the stick. And, and it's, it's no fault of the owner. I think that the fault is ours when after producing at a certain level over a period of time that we're not seeking to get higher up the ladder. Like, I don't, I don't think that anyone should forego being a cook before they become a chef. I don't think that anyone should forego understanding the technical aspects of running and managing a kitchen before they get to the process of being acclaimed as a chef. But I also don't think that a chef should be stagnant and just get buried in the kitchen and not understand the scope it sounds of like the, the business. Yeah, like the ceiling needs to be higher. We need to add more rungs to the ladder and climb higher. Well, they're there. Yeah. The rungs are there. We just We're just climbing. allowing somebody else to occupy them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and then that's what leads me back into real estate because, because for my pro, um, progression, it has to be cook and cook well and cook better and then cook great. And then understand inventory and organization and then understand that well and then master that. Yeah. And then understand leadership and management and, and, and the same process, right? You have to get better at it. And if I can't manage myself, I can't manage the team. And so then I have to understand how to manage emotion and manage um, um, people's potential. And so then, we, so then we break into that space. And then once I start to master those things, right, um, then I can master teaching, teaching people how to produce my ideas and replicate them on a day-to-day basis, teaching them how to start to seek out and, 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 and um, realize their own dreams or their own dishes and their own um, ideas as it relates to food. And now we've got a team where I'm not the only contributor to the menu, and, and we're creating this culture where people are really digging into what the food is, the delivery of the food, how we get the food, right? And, and, and now the team is starting to get really complete. Yeah. And so then when that starts to happen, people want to grow. And as, as people start to replace themselves as cooks, as sous chefs, as chefs de cuisines, right? Then I need to, because they're pushing up, I need to keep pushing up. Yeah. And my pushing up space now moves me from, from, um, um, from chef to starting to understand what it's like to own and in the natural progression to own is possibly if, unless you got a lot of cash on hand is to pay rent and then I start to understand fully understand right based on seeking out the information on what the restaurant I worked at paid for rent the nuances what things were beneficial in that space versus things that were cons in that space and then I start to pay rent and then at some point after paying rent I probably need to own that building yeah. or own a building right? Yeah. because sometimes so, landlords after you build equity won't even let you buy the place that you built the restaurant in. Yeah. Do so, you own this building? I don't own this building. This space? I do not physically own this building. Okay. We pay rent. Okay. Um, is it a goal of yours to own the building? Is that what you're working towards? Um, I am purchasing land rapidly Okay. right now to develop and to curate experiences that 
uh, both speak to the culture of what virtue is yeah. and expand upon this idea that there needs to be a natural progression. It, okay. It's not lip service for me. Um, by the time I start thinking that a thing needs to be calibrated, I'm already looking for tools. Yeah. So one of the things I picked up that I think, as far as your brand, one of the things I think you do well that I've been able to see from the outside looking in is developing your brand, developing your why, and communicating it really well um, to the point where like you're here, your your brand, Virtue, is... And I say behind every great restaurant is a great person and the restaurant is an extension of their values and what they're trying to do, what the change they want to see in the world is. And with what you're doing here, that's very clear. Um, what do we need to know about establishing? Like, What advice do you have for establishing a great brand and communicating what it is you're trying to do? How, how did you set that up? Is it just clarity, awareness, self-awareness of what you stand for? No. Um There was a problem that I was passionate about. And I think really great brands solve a problem. Um, a mission. No, it's not even a mission. They really go after solving its problems. I, I, I guess it's a purpose. Mission. Yes. Yeah. Purpose is the word. Um, so we don't have to love Amazon. They definitely solved. They found a void and they stepped in it and they knocked it out of the park. Um, and for most people who don't even like Amazon, they still order from. Yeah. Them. As a brand, it works. You don't even think about it. You need yeah. something. You, you do a Google search. It's the first thing that pops up. Right. Um, and you can price compare right in Amazon. Um, and you're hard pressed a lot of times to find things outside of it. You know, specific things, right? Like if you want Lysol, um, it's hard to find Lysol from a vendor um, um, outside of them that's going to be cheaper. Um, so that's what I recommend that people do when they think about their brand. They find the purpose of their brand. So the purpose of our brand um, um, sounds a little corny. <clears throat> I've got a group of individuals. All of my managers worked with me at one point in time at MK. Yeah, They all left restaurants and moved to the South side, which is not an easy thing to do. It's one thing to get people to work with you again. It is something different for them to physically uproot and move to, to be, to participate part of a concept. Um, our primary goal was for us to get the band back together. Um, and to provide the original MK crew, not well, not original. Cause it's not all of us, yeah, but, yeah. but, but a few key components and allow enough room for people to grow, to create more capacity in their current space. So we could work with one another. That was high on our list of things that we wanted to check off the bucket list. Um, and we stay in touch. So, so that should be noted. Um, so we're already contributing to each other's success in some form of fashion or validating one another in some form of fashion. And so we wanted to carry on that opportunity and we needed a space to do that. Um, we all had needs. And we felt like the best way for us to satisfy our needs was to have more ownership of our territory. Whether that was a pastry station, whether that was heading the kitchen, whether that was the bar program, 
um, running the restaurant, operating, whatever that was, whatever our, we felt like our strong suit was, we felt like there was a way to expand upon that thing. And we're so nutty that we thought that if we showed up every day and we worked really, really hard about the thing that we really cared about with the people that we liked working hard with and cared about also, that that energy would translate to our guests. We are careful not to use the term diner or, or um, customer because you're a guest. If this is an extension of our home, you go to someone's home, you don't, they don't welcome you as their diner. They welcome you as their guest. Yes. And we felt that there was a huge void in not just the industry but in the world for kindness. And we witnessed that over the last 13 or 14 months as things got distilled and really concentrated. And we felt like we were on the right side of history because kindness is a virtue and that is what we wanted to exemplify every day. And we wanted to exemplify that kindness through um, very focused hospitality and through cooking food that we are both passionate about, that we do research on, and that we think affects people in a way that they can wrap their head around and that makes them feel better. Not just nourished, but better when they walk away. Okay. So make sure I understand your, your mission, your purpose is to create a restaurant that creates opportunity, specifically ownership for its people and to also create an entity that is driven by your virtues, which is kindness and hospitality. Absolutely. And don't leave out ownership for the guests. Ownership for the guests. What is ownership for the guests? Ownership for the guests is them being able to buy into the culture of the space. So, so they can identify with it. And, and not just identify with it. It, it digs a little deeper. Um, um, when you think about the song on Cheers, people want to go where everybody knows their name, where things always stay the same. We don't want things to always stay the same, but we want them to to know what they're going to get, what yeah. they're going to expect. A kid expects a toy and a Happy Meal. It's part of what drives the Happy Meal sales. Yeah. We expect a certain thing when we go to McDonald's. They're open. Um, you're hard-pressed to get to a McDonald's where they're not open mm-hmm. at the time they're supposed to be open. Um, there's just an expectation. And um, for many years, we expected the McDonald's fries to taste the same until they changed them. Yeah. Um, and there's an expectation on our delivery that people have come to expect here and they've bought into it so much so that they are the reason why we, why we survived the pandemic. Our, our guests and the community of guests that are directly around us sent checks, money, notes, support, purchase food. I, I mean, we, we received support in a way that we couldn't even imagine receiving it all because we left room for the guests to participate and our nightly success. And that's ownership, you know, in, in its highest form. So by participate, do you mean choose to come eat at your restaurant? Or is it beyond that? We raised $56,000 in days um, um, on, a, on a crowdfundme account. First, to allow people to participate in the stability of our team when the pandemic hit. Um, and then second, for us to feed um, frontline um, healthcare workers, and um, so so participate by buying into your values and your purpose. Yeah, it was an investment, right? Yeah. That you know, most times when we spend money, 
we expect goods. Yeah. And then other times when we spend money, right, we're investing and we're expecting a return on investment. Goods provide you a return on investment because it supplies, it fills a need. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Buy toilet paper, it has a job. You invest in Tesla, right? Yeah. You expect that money now has a job. Tesla has a job to produce, right? Dividends. And so <clears throat> our dividends are to keep this place open and provide them the necessary space that they crave. And, and that's, that's our production. That's what we produce. And we produce it by way of food and we produce it by way of service and hospitality. Yeah. And I think the other thing going back to how we started is you're serving people by helping them have purpose or people who identify with your purpose are going to come here because they want to be a part of what you're doing. And I think you're also going to attract, you're going to attract onto yourself the people that are like you by having that purpose because they want to be a part of it too, because it's aligned with what they're doing. I would agree. Does that buy into it? Yeah. Is that part of the big thing? You're you're spot on now. It took a little while for us to get spot on. (laughs) Spot on right now. Awesome, man. And I'm loving it. And um, I can't believe we're already almost at an hour and a half of recording. Um, I know there's a lot of things um, you're advocating for. I know you're a voice for a lot of people. Uh, Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up as far as things that you think need to be heard? It was a need for me to learn the Declaration of Independence in order for me to prepare for the Constitution that allowed me um, the right to graduate um, in Chicago public schools. We had to understand, we had to know, you know, certain points in Mm -hmm. the Constitution. And it baffles me that so many people have memorized the phrase um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yet we don't honor it, honor it as a country, and we don't advocate as citizens of said country um, on a more consistent basis. We elect officials that we expect to do a job that oftentimes fails the um, citizens, and then we complain about party lines. And it, that's just bizarre to me. You say party lines. You're talking about left-right parties? Like yeah. the lines? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Independent, left-right, you know, who we need to get in office. and It's, it, it's just bizarre. So you're saying me. we elect these people into office and then we complain when they don't do the job, but we're putting them there. Is that the, we the message? We put them there and we leave them there. Yeah. You, no chef in the world gets to put out bad food. For two year, for a two year term, four or four years. year <laughs> yeah. term, eight years sometimes, <clears throat> right? Yeah. You know, um, um, or not have a cap on how long they could serve food, and they get to keep showing up to work every day, yeah. and their check is on time. They got better health care than the people who are spending money in the restaurant. I mean, like it's the craziest thing ever. Yeah, and we still run around holding tight. To the fact that, you know, I'm Republican and I'm Democrat. And, like, I don't want to overthrow the government. I think people have more work to do. I think it's time for people back. You know, my mindset is ownership. We have to own our space. And that ownership really, ha- it boils down to one word, accountability. Yeah. You know, you have to be accountable for the, for the, for the land you cover. 
Okay. You know? So is this more of like a, on an individual basis, if we're going to change things, we need to hold ourselves accountable to fill in the blank. What are we holding ourselves accountable to? If I don't like legislation, I should be writing. Mm -hmm. And often. And I should be finding out why um, someone is not doing the job that many times they've said they're going to do. Yeah. And there are times when there is red tape, right? There, there is years and years and years of red tape that prevents a person from doing a thing. Yeah. Um, voting laws are like that. However, is there anyone else that shares the idea that um, there's a particular um, um, group that is not doing enough to change a particular thing, whether that is your local municipality or whether it's the Senate um, and or the House. And so, so I bring up those points to say that um, as citizens, citizenship is a duty. It's not just a right. Yes. And, and there's Privilege. work to do as, as a citizen. Um, uh, we have the privilege to drive. Driving is not a right. And you have to do some things to maintain that privilege. <clears throat> you have to renew your license every now and then. You have to understand the laws that changed. Um, and so on and so forth. And so what we do at Virtue and what I equip my team to be able to do is use their voice in a way that matters. And both, um, both um, galvanizes and impacts their immediate group based on their immediate needs. <clears throat> and that feels good to us and it feels good to our community. So if you were to walk up to a restaurant, you would immediately notice that there are signs um, that in some instances, as sadly as it is, were people's last words, um, um, like, I can't breathe. And then there are other signs that speak to um, liberties that African Americans in our country and many minorities don't share equally with other groups. Like, I can't, I can't um, have a routine traffic stop. Um, I can't legally own a firearm. Um, <clears throat> and I've been challenged on the idea that many of the signs start with things that we can't do. And my response is very simple. We want to bring awareness to the fact that, again, I don't think that our system is inevitably broken. I think that it needs a constant calibration. Um, I think that there are things that are terribly, terribly wrong with the system. But if we use the same metaphor, if we're looking at a scale, right, I don't think that I need to overthrow the government. I think we need to um, um, calibrate the government. Use the tools right. that are there to be used the way they were intended to be yes. used. Yes, in their full intention. I yeah. think everybody really deserves the, the opportunity to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And liberty is one of those big things. You know, like many of us are living – unless some unforeseen circumstances change that, like <clears throat> a rogue cop deciding that they're going to be judge and jury on the side of a road, um, um, many of us get to pursue happiness, but it's the liberty part. That's the kicker, right? And so... <clears throat> What's your definition of liberty? 
liberty in my mind um, um, focuses on liberation. So it's lifting a person out of a place of either bondage or something that holds them back. Um, Suppression. It's a way of freeing a person, freeing someone from poverty, freeing someone from ignorance, um, freeing someone from straight on oppression, um, um, enslavement in some form. And um, we don't we don't pass the litmus test as a country. Um, when you look at all of all of our citizens, when it comes down to liberty, awesome. Anything we have not mentioned that you want to get out? Now's the time. Um, I think we've covered a lot. We have covered a lot, um, and I think you got a lot of B-roll here. So, um, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, if there's anything you would like for me to take a um singular focus on and, and not give you as many examples but like dive into something so um i mean one one question i ask all my guests before we go to the speed round is the mission statement is to inspire empower and transform the industry uh so i want to know how have you transformed in a positive way over your 20-year career or now 23-year career over actually my career is longer than yeah. that but <clears throat> um um over you know a little shy of 30 years um I have learned how to commit in a way that I, that I never imagined, um, both to community, to a value system. To purpose. Um, to purpose. Purpose is in that value system. Um, to individuals as a whole. Um, and I have to say individuals because we're all so different. Um, to a, a system of support. And these are all things that have grown as I've gained experience over the years. And <clears throat> if you ask me what my proudest accomplishment is, it would probably be the growth in that space. Um, it, it's it, like I have moments of pride when I figure out a thing with a dish or with an animal. Um, when, you know, I have proud moments and creativity but they but they don't equal to uh, moments that i feel make me a better human being yeah for what it's worth i think there's a lot of hope on the horizon because of resources like this we can share ideas we can teach people information is traveling faster than ever and information isn't just knowledge it's virtues it's values and it's it's sharing purpose and there's there's all these virtues echoing and being transferred faster than ever before. And we're learning at a clip and we're changing at a clip faster than ever before. And it's exponential and we're getting there. And I think that there's a lot of hope, but we have to keep in mind that it's our responsibility. If, if you, if there's something you don't like about the world, we live in a country that we can do something about it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like we can act on it. We can, we can choose. And I think yes. that, that we're realizing that, is very powerful and there's just so much opportunity out there. I've loved this conversation. We're going to take one more break to thank our sponsors and we're going to bust out a true speed round. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box. Bento Box delivers a restaurant online marketing and commerce platform to help restaurants succeed by giving them back control of their presence, profits, and experience. Bento Box helps new restaurants get started with websites, online ordering, and marketing.
marketing. You probably already knew about the websites. I mean, every leading restaurateur out there seems like it, they're using Bento Box, and that's because their brand building websites are designed exclusively for the needs of a restaurant. Bento Box builds it for you, and then they give you control to update things as you need, like menus, hours, and homepage alerts. Beyond awesome websites, you're also getting ordering. Open new revenue channels with online ordering, online catering, and e-commerce so you can sell things like gift cards and merch. And in addition, you're also getting marketing tools. Bento Box makes it easy to stay connected to your diners with pre-built automated email campaigns, built-in SEO, loyalty rewards programs, and more. All of this included with every Bento Box subscription. You should also know that Bento Box has brand new packages designed with the needs of new restaurants in mind. Get everything you need to get started marketing before you even open and succeed from day one. Current Bento Box customers have seen an average of 70% more website traffic, seven times more conversions, and five times their average ROI. I schedule a demo at getbento.com slash unstoppable and receive three months free. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? My it factor, a habit or trait that most contributes to my success commitment. What is your biggest weakness? Um, um, I'm obsessive. Mm. What is one of your biggest challenges today? Um, finding balance. How are you finding that balance? Well, balance is, is, um, it's accepting that balance isn't 50, 50, um, balance can be 60, 30, 70, 40. And it, it, the need for me these days, I'm finding it through, um, justifying the means. Um, and so, my work days could be imbalanced um, in an effort to serve the goal of spending more time with my family. Um, 
So it's imbalanced today with the goal of it being more balanced tomorrow. Um, so I'm always working towards a thing, and I, and I have to continue to revisit that thing to make sure that I haven't um, gone astray. What's one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? I think you already kind of addressed this earlier, but we can, we can echo it now. Um, I don't know if there is a particular question that I ask any team member uh, when we're recruiting. Um, I think you said you, before you look for, um, was, was it commitment? I look, I look for commitment and I look for loyalty, yep. but I don't, I don't take a direct approach to getting those answers. Um, and, and if I did that, then we would give people the answer to come in here and start lying and, and, and join the team. So, um, <clears throat> but I, I never take a direct approach. I, I usually try to feed off of the person. And I'd like to believe I've been doing this long enough um, where I, I could still be fooled, but I don't generally get fooled that often. Yeah. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be? A code of conduct. Um, honest. Honesty is probably the code of con- conduct. Um, I, I really focus on positioning my team in a way where they don't have to steal anything from me. Uh, most things that I have are accessible. Um, and I will show people either how to acquire them and or give them to them, reward them with them um, um, based on their contributions. And um, I think it's uber important that people are honest with themselves. I think that helps um, deflate insecurity. I think it helps promote confidence. And I think it puts you on the clearest path to success. I love that. Uh, And I agree. What is one uncommon standard of service that is common within your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry? Um, I think, I think kindness, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, if we said there was a secret sauce, the secret sauce is kindness, Mm. you know, um, we, we don't believe the customer's always right. I I would never tell anybody that, um, we believe in killing people with kindness. Like we will go out of our way to make sure that we make people comfortable. Um, and, and we take a lot of pride in winning that battle. Yeah. But every now and then (laughs) somebody just wants to prove us wrong that that we cannot make them comfortable because they are uncomfortable for reasons that are beyond our control and then we help them um, um get to a place where they can be more comfortable and that's usually outside of our business yeah. uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner um i couldn't give you one book my experience is a culmination of many things that i've that i've read and or experienced and um, um, I, I just wouldn't even pigeonhole myself that way. <laughs> okay, you get a pass. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Say that one more time. What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I read a book that um, that is. I've read many books by this author, but there's a book called The One Minute Manager, and The One Minute Manager talks to you about. Um, Catching people do things right. And I think society would be better served if we praised people more. Yeah. Most humans need validation. Reinforce the good. Yeah. We spend more time validating babies and puppies than we do humans. Um, and adults, actually, you know, we don't need our ego stroke. We just, you know, like we're working hard to make a thing great. And every now and then it's nice when you say, 
this is great. And yeah. it's no fluff. It's no bullshit. It's no, it's, you know, uh, the customer walks in the room and they say, oh, my God, it smells so good in here. It's recognition. I know dinner's going to yeah. be great. Yeah. yeah it's recognition. Yeah. We, we all we thrive. We, we, we hunger for recognition. We do. We can give it to each other easily just by in the moment saying, good job. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. for sure. This is incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, name one service. Plus, we just got a book recommendation, too. So there you go. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> name one service you've hired or outsourced. So this isn't a technology that you plugged into your business. It's more outsourcing to people who do a thing better than you could ever do it yourself. Who have you partnered with? Who are the, the services you've outsourced to? Um, I mean, all of our back office services are things that people can do better than me because I fight organization. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, this is the first time in my life I have a personal assistant. Um, <clears throat> is it a company that you went through to find this purple, this personal assistant? Nope. Nope. I got no co- companies to endorse. Um, we work really, really hard working with, um, um, small businesses, um, because we want, as we grow, we want to work with people that grow with us. Um, and we find that just works better for us. Because I told you, when we opened this place, it was, you know, batshit crazy. And, you know, as we make errors, um, large corporate entities may not be as nimble to, yeah, more to make adjustments. And they don't spend as much time explaining. <clears throat> Smaller companies usually have a little bit more patience because they are having learning curves themselves. Um, and that, that just works yeah, better. They're for evolving with you. Yes, they are yeah. evolving and growing with you. Yeah. Um, what is one technology that you've implemented in your business that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiencies, profitability, anything along those lines? Um, a technology. Gosh. And the reason why I ask this question is that Ooh. I feel like as we move into the future, part of the solution is going to be and it sounds counterintuitive but to replace people with technology, but I feel like when you move people out of doing the thing, it opens up their mind to be more creative and to tap into what is uniquely us, that, that frontal lobe that to contribute to the, the greater cause. Right. So and I, I don't know. Do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? I'm definitely picking up what you're putting down. Um, <clears throat> I'm just trying to think of what we're using these days. Um, there's a good amount of technology in restaurants that we overlook. Um, so reservation systems, um, inventory systems. Um, we use an inventory system where we input invoices every day. What um, is that system? Scan, um, invoices. Um, um, is it I'm, craftable? I'm Bevinger, sorry? Foodinger, craftable? Um, uh, I know the system, but I'm not endorsing anybody's system. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're not paying me to do it. Well, here's the idea it's back behind to it. Ownership space. It's not about them. Yes. It's about the fact that there's so many options out there mm-hmm. that as a first time restaurant tour, when you're looking to invest in a tool or a service, it's overwhelming. And what I'm trying to do is to create a way to use word of mouth to kind of make the decision easier. Oh, I get that. And I'm saying that I've watched rappers endorse alcohol brands that they don't own and until they figured out how to buy land and own alcohol brands they were just word of mouth endorsing brands that made a lot of money off their endorsements so i won't put myself in a position where i'm endorsing brands okay i respect that, that right like i stand behind these brands because i use them but they're back to that engine model they're benefiting right i pay for a service if they call me tomorrow and say, hey, we want you to talk about on your podcast our brand and tell us all the great ways 
that, um, um, that you utilize it and we're going to waive your fees for the next five years, all of a sudden you're hearing me talk in a very jovial voice about their brand. But for now, you said it. There are a lot of opportunities out there for people. If somebody wants to call me personally or send me an email, I'm happy to let them know, but I'm not going to endorse anybody's <laughs> okay, brand. Okay, I respect that. There'll be an opportunity at the end to uh, leave your contact information. Yeah, they can uh, send me a note um, <laughs> on Chef Eric Williams on Instagram. Make sure they're following me. And um, um, that's where I endorse brands on Instagram. Other than that, yeah, I will not do that. No, I respect it. And this is the last question. Get ready for it. It's a doozy. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. But you can leave three pieces of wisdom behind for your legacy and for the good of humanity. What are those three pieces of wisdom? Um, <clears throat> family first. One. Um, live with purpose. Two. And um, have as much patience with your mate as you do with your friends. Three. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Chef Eric. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Uh, Chef Zach connected me with you. And who do you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Somebody, if you were, if they're on the show, you'd be listening to that episode. Um, Man, I got a lot of people I respect. You can, you can <clears throat> give me a bunch if you want. I'm, I'm all for it first. Great. Okay. So, um, Chef Brian Jupiter um, of Anime's Tavern and um, Frontier. Um, Tony Priolo. Um, <sighs> Chef Cliff Rome of Peaches. Um a gentleman who is mostly behind the scenes because he works for such a large group um, is um, Chef Cedric Hardin. Um, John Mannion. Um, Kevin Hickey. Is he out in Arizona? Kevin Hickey? Yeah. Kevin Hickey is at the Duck Inn... And Bridgeport. Okay. Um, This is great. um, Gosh. Sarah Gruenberg. And these are all people that I talk to on a fairly frequent basis about our industry. And and we exchange notes. Um, Giuseppe Tori. Um... um, See. I mean, you dropped a lot on yeah. us. <laughs> this has been great. Yeah. So I'll just re- say uh, Brian, Tony, Cliff, Cedric, John, uh, Kevin, Sarah, Giuseppe. Look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, how can we connect with you? If we really resonated with your message today, uh, we want to reach out to you to maybe come join your team or to ask a question about anything that was mentioned. What's the best way to connect? I think the fastest way that people can connect with me is through Instagram. Um, and again, that is Chef Eric Williams. Um, send me a direct message. Um, follow along. It's, it's my personal journey. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, we spend a lot of time updating, um, our virtue social media with food. Um, and I spent a bunch of time just walking through my own, 
personal story, my kid, my food, my, it, it could be anything that's on my mind. Yeah. Um, but, but it's an easy way to get in touch with me without me personally giving out my cell phone number. Chef Eric Williams, thank you so much, man, uh, for making time, for sharing your knowledge, uh, for sharing your values and your virtues. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Well, thank you so much. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to today's guest, Chef Eric Williams. Great stuff, man. I'm just so thrilled to share your story, to make an example of you and your values and what you're doing to lift up your community. And one of the really cool thoughts that came from today's conversation is this mentality that we are not the beneficiaries of our industry. We go into communities, we add value, we lift up communities, and we're just making other people win. And I think that what we got from today's conversation is how can we own our businesses as executive chefs, as front of house people own the businesses, and also be the beneficiary of the the good we're doing. And a lot of other people are benefiting off our hard work. And I think it's good to create win-win situations, but can we be doing better? Can we be owning more of the big picture and being smarter businessmen and women? I think we can be. And I think that uh, Eric really opened up my eyes to that today. And uh, I think we should be more mindful of it. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Feel free to email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, or come hang out in the network every Tuesday and Thursday. I make myself available for open conversation and coffee. Let's kick around this this topic. I think it would be neat to kind of unpackage some of the points that Eric brought to us today. And also happening in the network, we have a lot of cool things going on. This week, we have two CEOs joining us in the network. First, on Monday, the day this episode goes live, at 12.30, if you're listening to this in the morning, be sure to join us for lunch. Uh, The CEO of Restaurant 365, Tony Smith is joining us and they just acquired Compete. Uh, If you're interested in Restaurant 365, how often do you get a chance to talk to the CEO? Well, you can do that uh, during the Q&A after our recording on Monday. And then on Wednesday, we have the founder and CEO of Ovation, a SMS and communications tool that's been getting a lot of hype and a lot of attention on the show. We're going to be pulling back the layers on Ovation. And then we have peer mentoring with Ken McGeary, one of my Chicago guests, uh, and the author of The Surprise Restaurant Manager. Uh, and if you RSVP to that event, the first 10 people to RSVP are going to get a free signed copy of his book. So come hang out with us in the network. We'll see you over there. Head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.